Hello, I'm Christine Malika, PhD, and this is Interview with a Therapist. I'm a licensed psychologist, and each episode, I will be asking 10 questions to a professional in the field of mental health. Please note, in order to protect current or former clients' privacy in accordance with HIPAA and confidentiality laws, all identifying information has been changed. Today, on Interview with a Therapist, I will be speaking with Ellen Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn is an associate professor in the Counseling and Counseling Psychology programs in the School of Education at Indiana University, Bloomington. She is a licensed psychologist who spends most of her clinical time supervising therapists in training. Her clinical experience and expertise are in the areas of Latinx mental health and substance use disorders. To these ends, she serves as a clinical supervisor for doctoral students learning to provide therapy in Spanish and to treat substance use disorders. She is also principal investigator for a study in brief cognitive behavioral intervention for young adults with substance use disorders. Welcome, Ellen. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you today. So let's talk. Here's our first question. Which psychologist or figure in the field do you most admire? This is kind of a hard one, um, but one that comes to mind is Dr. Patricia Arredondo, and she was really intimately involved in um, developing the multicultural counseling competencies, which has certainly evolved over time. Um, but for me, it was a really important framework for kind of thinking about my own white identity um, as I was learning and working with Spanish-speaking immigrant communities. Um, and while I've never met her, I've read her work and I've seen her speak. And I've always really been impressed with not just the importance of her work as it applies to working with clients and working with um, the Spanish-speaking community, but really the ways in which she talks about her work. Um, and she does does so in a way that um, truly communicates inclusivity and the power of including everyone at the table. Mm. Part of that, of course, is truly listening to our clients with the goal of understanding them from their perspective and through their lived experience rather than our own. And I think that that just really leaves a strong impression on me. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And we know that's a huge part of the skill set we undertake during trainings to try and achieve even an understanding of how to do that as a therapist, let alone being able to execute it well in therapy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's certainly something I try to um, bring to my own um, work with students. Okay. Which case will you never forget? <laughs> Um, so this this was actually a really hard one to answer because there are so many that are memorable. Um, but I, I tried to really think about um, a more long-term case. And I think one of the cases I'll never forget is um, a person who was um, a victim of domestic violence um, and really had very patiently... Um, and in a very resilient way, planned to leave over the course of years. Um, and this person really just 
waited and it and it took years for them to really feel like they could safely leave and so um and most of our work was really was was after the person had left um the the relationship and was spending a lot of time sort of processing what that what that was like but really over the course of that time i just heard kind of the details of um you know, of, of this planning, which involved a move with their partner, um, and then lots of time years sort of saving money for housing and this the sort of meticulous way in which um, the client thought about how to do this um, and to simply survive until they felt secure enough to um, escape. And so um, really just just the, the level of detail that, that the client shared about um, the trauma they not just the trauma they experienced, but that careful planning and and really more importantly their their resiliency um, was really unfor- unforgettable. You know that's interesting. You said resiliency because I found through the very few interviews I've done so far and my own experience, oftentimes it is the strength and resiliency of our clients that is the most market impression they leave on us of how strong they are. And how yeah. resilient they are going through their worst times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just sort of something that kind of, um, it's right there alongside of them. And, and, and I, I'm quite honestly can, can leave you just, you know, it, it just, even right now, I, I can, I can feel, um, just remembering it sort of what it's like to just think about how those two things, um, Sit by side by side, just all of that, all of that trauma, along with with that resilience of of trying to get through. Yes, yes. Okay, what is the most frustrating thing about your job? <laughs> um, well, there's a couple of things, but um, so I, I work for a large institution, but um, where sometimes there's barriers, but. But speaking about sort of mental health care, um, I think probably the most frustrating thing is just to see um, just lack of access to care um, and that there continues to be barriers for many communities. So I, I have the privilege of training and supervising doctoral students in their work in our training clinic. In our training clinic, um, it serves um, our university community, but it also serves the broader Bloomington community. Um, and we really aim to have, to be a low barrier entity in terms of accessing care. Um, and so we have a sliding fee scale. Many of our clients don't pay to, to come. Um, and, um, and yet we still continue to see gaps in specialty care or the need for psychiatric services. Um, so we continue to see that even um, even here. And we, and we have lots of mental health providers in our community, but um, it's not uncommon to, to find gaps and to find um, that we have clients who need specialty care that we are not able to provide. What do you consider your biggest professional success? Um, so this is also 
I wonder if people keep telling you that these are hard questions to answer. They do. Um, <laughs> they, so, do. <laughs> they do. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years into my career as an academic psychologist. Um, and, oh, that seems like such a long time. But I really think that um, my most meaningful professional successes are mentoring of students um, and new psychologists. Um, so I have nine mentees now who've graduated um, from IU with PhDs in counseling psychology. Um, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, my, my, one of my, probably the favorite thing I get to do with them um, is to walk with them in graduation. Oh, right, 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 um, right. Yeah, I get to walk with them in graduation and we spend that time together and then I hood them. Um, and I just love that um, because it's just this, it's sort of this capstone of this relationship that you've been building with them. Um, and then you get to transition from being their um, mentor and advisor into being their colleague and their friend. Um, and then truthfully, there's also these nine people out there who are doing amazing things. They're, they're practitioners providing services in university counseling centers and private practices and community mental health. They're consultants, um, they're academics. So they're doing really great and amazing things. So I, I think that's probably my biggest professional success. That's wonderful. And I think that for the non-therapists out there, that relationship you describe as advisor and mentor, uh, for you would also include, I imagine, advising them on their dissertation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so for people who don't know that, that's a fraught time of graduate training. <laughs> and yeah. your advisor becomes at once like a best friend and worst enemy at times in terms of um, getting through that, because sometimes Indeed. they deliver bad news and sometimes they deliver good news. And so <laughs> to be able to walk down the, the aisle with them, knowing they've reached the goal and you've helped steward them there and they've gotten through probably one of the most stressful times in their lives, which is completing a dissertation. Um, it's quite a goal and it's a very emotional time. Um, so I just put that out there for people who aren't academics to know that that's a very unique uh, mentor-student relationship that goes on during the dissertation. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. It's, 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 quite, a, it's quite a journey. Um, <laughs> And most certainly much more nerve-wracking for the student than uh, for for the mentor. But um, right. it, it always feels good at the end. Right. <laughs> okay. How does being a psychologist affect your home life? <laughs> so this is a great question. Um, and there are many ways to answer this. Um, but uh, I think I'm constantly asking myself why I'm parenting in a way that's inconsistent with the research on parenting. Um, like, why do I keep reinforcing bad behavior? <laughs> um, so I have small kids. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's easier to just give in and let them do something. Yes. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, so I think that's one thing is that it, it gets me sort of thinking and analyzing. And there's some incongruence um, there between our psychologist <laughs> role and our at-home mom role. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Indeed. Indeed. It's the it's the reminder that you know even even psychologists 
uh, you know, it, it's a struggle uh, to make changes and do things differently. Um, but I, I think on the flip side, I think that having a psychology background um, actually helps me understand um, uh, my kids and my relationship with my spouse um, in a different way. Um, and that, that can be helpful. So uh, in particular with the kids, like, I, I think that it's easier to be calm when they're upset, when I remind myself that their brains are still developing and they, mm-hmm. they really only have a few years of figuring out like what to do with their feelings mm-hmm. and they have really big feelings. Um, and it takes a long time to figure out how to take care of yourself and your feelings. And in fact, as adults, we don't always do a very good job of right. taking care of our feelings. So right. expecting a five-year-old or a nine-year-old to do it well, um, you know, it just, that's just not how, you know, their brains are still figuring it out. Um, and so when I do that, I think that's helpful. It allows me to kind of, you know, just sit with them and, 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 uh, get out of my own feelings. Cause believe me, I still have feelings right. about it. Right. <laughs> Sometimes big feelings, but it, it kind of allows me to step back a bit. I agree with you that being a psychologist in a lot of ways can help with our home relationships. And I, I add, I qualify that by saying, for me, because I'm not so sure if my husband was here, if he'd say, oh, I love having a psychologist in the home. <laughs> it's wonderful yes, for me. Yes, <laughs> so. yes, 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 indeed. That yes. might that might be the same sentiment in my house. Right. Okay. Um, how do you deal with burnout and or vicarious traumatization? Oh, so, um, you know, I try to get away um, in it's in non-COVID times. Um, I try to get away. I think uh, beaches and mountains are often at the top of my list, um, and making sure um, that I um, have good boundaries about like, no, I I, I got to do something different, and I got to do something that um, helps helps me feel. Um, better and more connected and usually that's getting out outside and getting into to nature and that helps me sort of refocus in what I'm doing um so I would say that's probably the primary way that that I deal with it and um and sometimes it's as simple as like looking at my calendar and finding a day where I don't have anything scheduled and then just marking it out like blocking out the whole day like I I, I'm not going to do anything and sometimes that means I'm going to do something with my family if they're available or sometimes it's a day where they're at school and I just need time by myself Um, and so I'll I'll make sure um, that that I do that Um, and the other thing that I think um, I've gotten better at um, is actually letting myself feel what I'm feeling Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so in, and often it's simply acknowledging my feelings and letting myself sit with them. And I find that it helps a lot. It's not perfect. Um, but sometimes it helps just recognizing that like, oh, what is it that's going on? You know, in, if I, you know, if I'm feeling, you know, like, you know, tightness in my chest or whatever, or I'm trying to like, um, put aside a feeling as it, you know, relates to work or, or, um, 
burnout. So I feel like just giving myself to actually feel what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a faster solution than avoiding it. Maybe right. often a faster solution than avoiding it. So really so. just and accepting yeah. it. Yeah, it's acceptance. Yeah. yeah. Acceptance yeah. that, you know, we, we, we have a rainbow of feelings and they're there for a reason. And it's so good for our listeners to hear who aren't therapists that, wow, okay, they're not experts. They're not, they don't have it all together necessarily for their own emotions at times. That, um, you know, we don't have it all set for our own care. Like we can be great at helping other people and seeing things from our side of the uh, sofa and seeing what other people need to do clearly. But for ourselves, it's not always clear. For ourselves, we right, often need the right. same help and the same guidance and the same discoveries that our that our clients go through yeah. in terms of how to care for ourselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thank absolutely. you. For that. Yeah. What is something you remember learning from a patient? Hmm. So, um, I I think I've learned that um, alongside kind of the really deep. Um, kind of emotional and negative emotional experiences, including deep trauma and loss, that there's also the pragmatics of life that need to be addressed. Um, So I remember the first, you know, few times that I worked with clients who had experienced um, severe trauma and in multiple aspects in their life and that some sessions would involve delving really deep, deeply into the into the trauma or into the loss um, and really exploring the persisting impact of those experiences in their life. Um, and I recall a client who did this often. And then one week the client came in and was like, I need to talk about how to get my toddler to sleep in their own bed. Mm. And the client wanted to do this because they wanted they wanted their own bedroom space. They, they had a spouse. They wanted to kind of reclaim that as their space and their couple space. And I, and the first time that happened, my mind kind of like perked up because it was so different from the other sessions that involved really delving into these other, other issues. Um, But I, it was also clearly important. And so that particular week, we just talked about really kind of simple, straightforward strategies. I don't even remember what they were um, about how um, this transition might happen of getting the the small child to sleep in their own bed. And, and so we talked about it. And then the next session, the client simply shared that it had worked and the client was sleeping in their, their own room and it was just this nice reminder that um that therapy yeah it sometimes it it often involves diving really deep but sometimes you got to get to the pragmatic everyday tasks Mm -hmm. of life you know like getting your kid to sleep in their own bed if that's really what it is that that you want in your household um so that i think that was a it it's was an important thing thing to learn um, that you've got these, that there's these simple things too, and it's not always this deep, intense, um, emotional exploration. 
in every session. Right. And, and oftentimes that deep exploration into trauma usually is something from the past. It's usually something that yeah. has been with the person um, for quite some time in their past. And then you get this session where you switch into present mode. Oh, it's my toddler yeah. and bed. And you're you're sort of going back and forth between the past and processing the past. And yeah. then, no, this is a day-to-day thing. And it, it reminded me of something I was taught um, by one of my supervisors when working with people with trauma is, okay, so we unzip them in session, but don't forget mm-hmm. to zip them back up before they leave the door because you got to yeah. zip them back yeah. up so they can go out and live their lives yeah. until the next yeah. session because they can't stay in the trauma space of the right. session because right. there is a toddler and there is a job and there is a spouse right. and a home life. Right. So I always think of that. Remember that. Make sure you zip them back up. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Because that everyday life is, it, it's important. Yes. Yeah. What, it's the in-between session time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you yeah. could make one change to the field of psychotherapy, what would it be and why? Yeah. So I, I think that um, the field has made great strides in addressing um, stigma around stigma coming to therapy. Um, and, but there's also, I think, still work to be done around stigma associated with kind of the types of problems that our clients come to us with. Um, so it's stigma. And then it's also a bit about maybe, you know, competency concerns. So one of the things in, um, in my intro, you talked about my interest in substance use disorders, but I, I feel like too often I still hear clinicians and then my students as well, who they feel uncertain about working with people who have substance use disorders. Um, and, um, and we even know that there's research out there that, that healthcare providers, and I say healthcare providers broadly because it's not just psychologists and therapists and counselors, but, um, it can be other healthcare providers, but they still, there's still a lot of, um, stigma, um, stigmatizing sort of language and thoughts about who people with substance use disorders are, um, and one of the things that helps that is actually working with people with substance use disorders. And so that's one thing I'd, I'd love to see more change. And, and it's change in training. It's change in sort of how we think about it. Um, because clinicians are uncertain about working with those with substance use disorders, yet we really know from the prevalence rates and the epidemiologic data that substance use disorders are among the most common mental health problems. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I always tell my students, um, if you think you're not treating a substance use disorder, substance use disorders, you might want to revisit how you're doing your intake assessments and the questions that you're asking. Um, because I hope that, that, that they can sort of arrive at this place where they feel more comfortable assessing folk substance use and their substance use disorders, but also treating it alongside with the the many other concerns that a client comes with. So I I think that sort of it's this um, more attention to kind of the whole person and all the potential um, problems that they they come with and they might 
come and their primary problem is depression or trauma. Um, but it's important to ask about the substance use because it happens right alongside and might be in very connected to what it is that they've told you um, is the reason that they've come. come. So I, I, I think that's one thing I'd like to see more change. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. If you weren't a psychologist, what career do you think you would be? Um, so this is kind of, uh, maybe this is a cop-out answer, but honestly, I think I'd be a psychiatrist. Mm. <laughs> and what I think that really tells me is that I made the right choice in being a psychologist. Because I don't think I'd rather be a psychiatrist than a psychologist. Mm. Um, but I do think if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, um, that I might be a psychiatrist or I'm, I might be uh, an epidemiologist that studies mental health mm-hmm. disorders um, <laughs> or substance use disorders. So there's a lot of kind of um, related things that I think I might be doing that if I wasn't doing what I'm doing. Yes. Well, it but sounds like you chose feel, correctly. Yeah. I honestly feel really lucky to be able to do what I do because I enjoy coming to work every day. Oh, well, that is great. That is great to hear. Yeah. Do you follow any religious or spiritual path? I do not. I do not. Um, I find myself in a largely secular space. Um, yeah. Okay. And I think... When I, I include that question because so many people historically and currently in the field of uh, psychology and psychoanalysis tend to be secular and tend to not follow. Yeah. Other, other than there are pockets of um, what's called like Christian counseling and specialty areas like that. But it seems like the yeah. bulk beyond that, psychology has traditionally not been aligned with spiritual and religious beliefs from the early forefathers. Yeah. And so I, I added that because I'm curious to see where we are today. You know, what people yeah. um, feel like today, what they um, believe today. Yeah. So that's where that question yeah. came from. Yeah, yeah. For for me personally, I don't. But I, I will say it's certainly something that comes up in the psychotherapy room a lot. Mm. Um, and is certainly something we talk about with respect to kind of um, you know, multiculturalism and cultural humility around how people use their own spiritual and religious beliefs mm-hmm. um, in the room, yeah, and in their lives. All right, thank you. Um, this is our bonus okay. question. And okay. it is, what do you wish to tell the non-therapists that are listening? Any messages mm-hmm. or ideas you'd want to share to the audience who aren't in the, in the field? Yeah. Um, I, I think what I, what I always want, um, people to know is, um, to not close the door on going to therapy, um, and, or going back to therapy, uh, and that, um, it, it can be hard to make the choice to go to therapy, but it, it really can um, be so helpful. 
um, and uh, and also don't hesitate to um, change therapists if you're not connecting with the therapist that you have. Yes. Yes. Um, but but that this you know therapy is really um, it's an opportunity for you to think about change um, to explore different aspects of who you are and your life. Um, and it's not something you have to do forever um, or it's something you can do for a while and then stop and go again. Um, but that it's, that it's an option and it, it really can help. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, uh, that is the end of our session today. I thank you for coming on and speaking with us. And I'm so glad to hear yeah, you're enjoying you. your career. And um, it was wonderful thank to you. catch up with you just from a perspective of us having done our own training together down in Florida. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Interview with a Therapist. As always, I hope these episodes both help humanize the therapist and help destigmatize seeking mental health treatment. If you are interested in seeking therapy, apa.org backslash help center is one place to start. If you are a family member of someone seeking help, nami.org can be useful. That's nami.org. You can find us on Instagram at interview therapist. Please note that comments or messages on social media are not monitored regularly and is not to be used for any treatment concerns or emergencies. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 911 in your local area or call 1-800-273-8255 nationally. This podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice or treatment.